You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Okay, thank you to those of you who are up so early, and we're going to do an update on STDs. I have no conflict of interest here. So this is ARS, so please take out your little clickers if you don't have one. They're in the baskets at the end of the row. So please take those out. And let's see what the state of knowledge about these disorders is to start with. Okay, ARS number one. It is estimated that worldwide, there are how many new cases of any STD? There should be the word daily there. So every single day, worldwide, how many new cases of STD are there? 10, 100, 350, 900,000, or 1,250,000. Okay, a nice distribution. Good. Somebody will learn something. ARS 2, at which college campus are you most likely to catch syphilis? This is like a recall question from yesterday. University of Oklahoma, Alabama, Idaho, Yale, or Ohio State? All right. Ah, a few of you weren't here yesterday. Everybody else remembers. Yes, good, good. Okay, number three, genital herpes due to HSV2 is likely to be more severe during periods of stress and anxiety, extreme dieting, excessive smoking, bulimia, and upper respiratory infection. And stress and anxiety is the clear winner, but we have some other answers, so that's good. We'll go to the next one. Genital herpes may respond to which innovative therapeutic intervention? Topical calcium gluconate, thermotherapy, modest cryotherapy, topical magnesium sulfate, and treatment for gastric H. pylori. Oh, again, a nice distribution. I like that. Good. You'll learn something. Lymphogranuloma venereum. Oh my God, what the hell is that? They're thinking, yes. Well, it's been in dormant, but it's making a resurgence, and for a good reason. Lymphogranuloma venereum now presents most commonly in what manner? Pharyngitis, unilateral inguinal adenopathy, bilateral inguinal adenopathy, proctitis or urethritis. Okay, very good. Infectious syphilis is most prevalent, the rate per 100,000. It's not the number of cases, because it's hard to compare if you have a city the size of New York 
compared to the city the size of Indianapolis. It's not pair, fair to, com to compare a number of cases, it's the rate per 100,000 in which US state? California, New York, Georgia, Nevada, or Louisiana? That's not a clue. Oh, perfect. Spread all across the board. So you will learn during this talk which is the most syphilitic state in the union. How many different HPV vaccines are currently available in the US? One, two, three, four, or five? It's kind of a trick question. Okay, interesting. You'll learn something. The incidence of pubic louse infestation scratching, in the US and other industrialized countries, industrialized countries, is increasing, decreasing, staying the same, or zero, because pubic louse infestation is only seen in developing countries. Oh, good. Really good, okay. An arbovirus which may be an STD is chikungunya, dengue, West Nile, Zika, or none of these. And Zika wins, but significant number of votes for other things. Gonorrhea, resistant to ceftriaxone, which is the treatment of choice, has been described in France, Japan, Norway, Puerto Rico, or all of these and even more. Ninety-three percent, all of these and even more. Good. Number 11, gonorrhea resistant to ceftriaxone should be treated with. Now let's see how many of you get this one right, because I wouldn't. Amoxicillin, if I didn't know, amoxicillin clavulanate, gentamicin and azithromycin, streptomycin plus doxycycline, piperacillin tazobactam, or solithromycin. Nice spread, excellent, excellent. And last but not least, how often do condoms pre prevent STDs, assuming they're, be they're worn? 100% uh, of the time, 92.3% of the time, 20% of the time, a variable percent depending upon the disease state, and never. Oh, we have a dichotomy here, 92.3 and a variable percent. Okay, so 
one at the one question it, it was 93% y'all got that right so that's great all the other ones there are significant numbers of you who did not get the right answer so hopefully you'll learn something from this lecture i know i just want to make a brief a brief plea i know stds aren't i was going to say sexy but that's not the right word <laughs> stds aren't like the coolest thing in the world but guys and gals, you know more about them, trust me you do, than your average OBGYN or urologist who are basically surgeons at heart. And I practiced next to an OBGYN academic, OBGYN office for 20 years. It was modular, so I could go back and forth and they dragged me back and forth to see genital lesions all the time. And if it wasn't classic lichen sclerosis or classic herpes, these, they were lost. They were lost. I understand that, and the ID people, they're interested in HIV, because that's really what turns them on, but the rest of the STDs, they're not all that good, and you know more about STDs than you think you do, and I'm gonna tell you something, in your communities, you can do a great service if you let people know your practice is willing to see patients with genital lesions that are suspected to be STDs and treat them because nobody else has taken up this set of diseases. And in Europe, there's a whole residency that's called genitourinary disease, good. They have people that's all they do is look at genital diseases. In the US, we don't have that. And the people who naturally should do this, OBGYN and, and urologists, are plumbers. I mean, they just sort of do their thing, mostly surgical. So if we don't do it in dermatology, nobody is going to. So I'm making a little plea to stay at least cognizant of these, to stay reasonably proficient in the diagnosis and management of genital lesions, whether they're STD or not, but particularly with STD, because these are communicable diseases. Somebody's got to diagnose and treat them. So here, every day worldwide, there are 100 million copulations, 910,000 conceptions, and 350,000 new cases of STD. Now you're sitting there and thinking, how the hell did he get those numbers? So you know those little webcam things that are on your, no. This is from the World Health Organization. And honestly, it's based on projections and it may not be exactly right, but what does it tell us? It tells us there's a whole lot of shaking going on and there's a whole lot of disease. Why do we still have STDs? This is kind of interesting. You know, sex is popularized at TV. It's used in advertisements. It's underappreciated by the average person in the public what the risks are. Those younger people have these sort of booty call relationships and they're sexting all the time. Oh my God, even some of the older people, like who was that representative who ran for mayor in New York, you know. So odd things happen also when people use drugs and drink alcohol. So, you know, now we have ED drugs in older men, which confer a three times average baseline risk. Same, same age men, those who do use erectile dysfunction drugs are 3.1 times more likely to acquire an STD than those who don't. So there are reasons why, and this isn't gonna go away. And let's remember, we're all here because of sex.
right? So this is the kind of stuff we see on TV and you know, these are our advertisements. Oh my God, look at that Dolce Gabbana ad. Ooh, it looks like a, ooh, anyhow. This is the only one I can't quite understand. You know, it, it's preying on Saxon beauty and Heidi Klum and she's almost exhibiting her genitalia while she's eating a Carl's Jr. heart attack hamburger. I, it's the only one I don't quite get. Anyhow, travel also. Somewhere between 5 and 50% of short-term travelers engage in casual sex, and they often do not practice safe sex, i.e. use a condom. So this is particularly true in younger travelers. So it's another reason we have lots of STDs. So I'm going to go through the STDs and try and point out what's new and interesting. HIV is still a problem. It has not gone away. You don't hear as much about it because we have good therapies for it. But if you look at worldwide in the USA, there are lots of people living with the disease, over a million in the United States. We've lost over 650,000 people to this dreaded disease. And the real problem, both in the US and worldwide, is of those who are diagnosed with HIV, who know they have HIV, under 50% actually engage in therapeutic intervention, which is really sad and is a reason for perpetuation of the disease. In the US, every 9.5 minutes, somebody is infected with HIV. It has not gone away. And here are the states that are most affected. You notice the dark blue and the red states. That's a fair number of them. The least affected are the very light blue, you know, places like Montana and Idaho, Dakotas, Maine, because it's so cold nobody has sex there. So I just wanted you to be aware of this. This is World Health Organization's recommendations for the treatment of HIV. And you can see these will be parallel statements. Combination antiretroviral therapy should be initiated among all adults with HIV, regardless of the stage or how many CD4 cells they have. In other words, as soon as you make the diagnosis of HIV, they need to go to someone who's an expert who can give them therapy. We don't wait anymore like we used to till their CD4 count got to pick a number. It was 350 at one point. It was 200 at one point. We don't wait until their viral load reaches some magical number. As soon as they're diagnosed, they should be put on medicine. So this is a statement for adults. This is for pregnant, breastfeeding, and other women. This is for adolescents as well as young people. Everybody should be placed on therapy as soon as the diagnosis is made, and that might end up saving a large number of lives. That is the current recommendation. The other interesting thing is this, pre-exposure prophylaxis. For those who are at high risk, particularly men who have sex with men without any barrier protection, there is a pre-exposure prophylaxis that's a daily dose. A lot of people don't like to take medicine daily, and so this new article, relatively new article from the New England Journal of Medicine, points out that pre-exposure prophylaxis on demand works very well. In other words, someone who is planning an interesting, unprotected sexual evening with probably an anonymous partner, that puts them at high risk. If they take a dose, and this is a double medication, 
It's well established. If they take a dose of that before exposure, 24 and 48 hours after exposure, it reduces their risk of acquiring HIV if that partner has HIV by 86%. That's really good, and it's a lot easier than taking medicine every single day. Rest of the STDs are on the rise. This is the most recent report. STD statistics are always about a year behind. So we have good statistics for 2014. 2015 statistics will be available in the fall, 2015, the fall of this year. So, but things haven't changed much. I already know that. So syphilis is resurgent. Look at 2014. One shy of 20,000 cases of primary and secondary, and I might add early, infectious latent syphilis, where there's nothing visible, but they can transmit the disease. You compare that to 2000, and it was 6,000 or so patients, 6 to 20,000. The rate is now over 6 per 100,000, up 15% from last year, just from the year before this. So this is really a major, major problem. Here are the syphilitic states. Nevada, congratulations, you're now number one. Louisiana and Georgia over the last decade have jockeyed for the number one and two position, and they're still up there, but Nevada has displaced them as the most syphilitic state. I am happy to note that there are a number of other states that I'm fond of. Illinois, my birth state's on there, and Texas, my adopted state, is on there. And these are the most syphilitic cities in America. And I did think it was important just to point out syphilis is here in Austin. So please, people, don't do anything silly while you're here in Austin. And then, of course, I had to point out that Columbus, Ohio, the place of Ohio State, oh, the Ohio State, is the syphilitic college town in America. Okay, syphilis looks like all kinds of stuff. Here's a bunch of pictures. You wouldn't necessarily look at any of these and say, oh, that's clearly syphilis. But I just want you to remember that any eruption, any single lesion, particularly a painless erosive ulcer, can be syphilis, and it is a great mimicker, just like tuberculosis, and because it's resurgent, and if your state was on that list of most syphilitic states, you might very well see this disorder. It's not going down, it's going up in a rather hyperbolic fashion. So remember, always keep that in your differential diagnosis. And remember today that there's very good immunohistochemistry. So if you biopsy something, your dermatopathologist can use a stain that demonstrates treponema pallidum very easily. We used to have to do a silver stain, which stains melanin. So you could get all kinds of funky looking positive things and you didn't know whether they were treponemes or not. The immunohistochemistry is very, very specific. And they can, if you put that in your differential, things you're not quite so sure about, they can look for the treponemes. This is HSV2, this is genital herpes. And you can see there's a global prevalence. It's all over the world. And in fact, we have new cases, about 20 million new cases a year. 20 million new cases a year worldwide. So genital herpes isn't going away. I found this to be absolutely fascinating. This is a relatively recent study. Yes, it's only 22 
patients, very small, but it was absolutely conclusive that under periods of stress and anxiety, those who have genital herpes, one, are more likely to have an overt outbreak, so it increases the risk of that, but even more importantly, they can shed virus without an outbreak, without any symptoms, no pain, no blisters, no ulcers, during periods of anxiety and stress. And remember that 70 to 80% of all cases of genital herpes are acquired during unprotected sex with someone who's shedding asymptomatically, no lesions. So what the message is here is if you have someone, you're having a difficult time getting under control and they have a highly stressful or anxiety-inducing relationship or job or children or all of the above, they need to get some mental health, mental health help so that they can cope with this better. And in fact, it's now been shown that if you do that, if you reduce stress and anxiety, it has the appropriate effect. It reduces the likelihood of outbreaks and reduces asymptomatic shedding. Do keep in mind this is really odd looking. This is hypertrophic or vegetative HSV. The patient to the left with the, the lesion there at the distal portion of the penis, right in the coronal sulcus and on the, you know, the, the distal portion of the shaft. That's actually my patient. And he was seen in urology and they biopsied him thinking this was a squamous cell carcinoma. And their pathologist didn't say, said, well, it's not squamous cell, but I don't know what it is. And so they sent him to me. And so yes, it looks like a tumor. Both of these look like tumors, but that's what HSV looks like. And it's often seen in conjunction with immunosuppression or immunocompromise, HIV most commonly, but also cancer patients or patients who are taking immunosuppressive drugs for whatever reason. This is a review from Thailand. It may or may not actually apply to the US, but in fact, about 5% of their cases of genital herpes presented that way. And I just want to show you that so that you won't be caught off guard if you see a patient like that. And the treatment for this is to use acyclovir, valacyclovir, famcyclovir. Often the organisms are not as sensitive as routine wild strain, but in combination with three times a week application of 5% imiquimod to boost their local immune response against the herpes virus, vegetative HSV. This is interesting. It's a novel treatment with thermotherapy, with heat. This is a small handheld device. I'll show you a picture in a second. It looks just like a lipstick case. And you press a little button, you put it, there's a little output area. You put that right where the outbreak is, you press a button, and you get 51 to 53 degrees centigrade for about four seconds. One or two treatments, one or two treatments, that's it leads to resolution of the genital herpes. And yes, a few people do have some discomfort from that, but it's for just a few seconds and it's very effective. And this is the device, it's called Herpotherm, cute, Herpotherm. Um, it's actually approved for orolabial herpes, for cold sores. It's not approved for genital herpes, but I'm gonna tell you it works. Now it's not approved in this country. It's approved in Europe, it's approved in Scandinavia. It's approved all over Central and South America in those countries where they have money. 
So it really does work. And you can get it. Your patients can get it. My patients have gotten it on eBay or Amazon, because you can get anything on eBay or Amazon. You can get an F-15 fighter jet on Amazon. So you can get Herpatherm, and it's a nice, almost immediate fix for genital herpes, thermotherapy. Gonorrhea, we don't take care of the drip very often, but we might see these two things, the so-called bullheaded clap, a lot of swelling, maybe not even a discharge, not so much pain, it's just swollen penis. And we might see gonococcemia, where you see these blisters, they can be hemorrhagic, they can be bluish looking, very small number, distally, out on the hands, the wrists, the ankles, and the feet, in conjunction with a locally swollen joint. That's gonococcemia, it's a blood-borne infection, it's sepsis due to Neisseria gonorrhea, and they need quick in the hospital with an ID person, internist looking after them. But bullhead clap is just an odd variant of normal, uncomplicated urethral gonorrhea, and so the standard therapy works just fine. How much gonorrhea is there? About 350,000 cases are reported, but way over 600,000 cases. Some people have even estimated 800,000 cases occur yearly. It's a reportable disease, but a lot of healthcare providers forget that, and they don't report it to their county health department. The rate has gone up, again, 5% over the year before the most recent reporting year, and it's gone up, I know this already, even though it hasn't been published, it's gone up again for 2015. So it used to be easy, right? A shot of penicillin, this is 1944, and your gonorrhea all went away. Oh, not so much anymore. In fact, most Neisseria gonorrhea is resistant to all penicillin derivatives, all tetracycline derivatives, and to the quinolones. We're down to the cephalosporins, in particular ceftriaxone. There's a lot of resistance to cefixime, which is an oral cephalosporin, which has now been dropped from the recommended therapy because there's so much resistance. And you can see here resistance in Australia, resistance in Puerto Rico. The original resistance strains were first simultaneously reported in Norway and Japan. And then the French have their own strain of resistant nice because the French like to do things in their own little way. But now it's all over the world, basically. And I mean resistant to everything except for put them in the hospital and give them IV things. So it's a bit difficult, this is bad, and it's causing a major problem. This is from our own CDC warning about drug-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea. So now the recommended treatment for Neisseria that's resistant to ceftriaxone, and of course a culture and sensitivity will determine that, are things like gemifloxacin plus azithromycin. Right now there's a nationwide shortage of gemifloxacin. You can't even get it. Or gentamicin, oh my God, that brings back fun days when I was an internist. Gentamicin, IM, plus azithromycin. If you remember in my ARS question, there was at the bottom of that what she should do for resistant Neisseria gonorrhea. It said solithromycin. That's an azolide related to azithromycin that has completed phase three trials and is pending approval, expedited approval, by the FDA. It's oral. So it's like azithromycin modified, very successful in single-dose treatment 
for ceftriaxone-resistant gonorrhea. And that's what you may be using to treat that bull head clap by next year. Looks like a very good drug, but it's not available yet. Solithromycin. Right now, ceftriaxone remains the drug of choice, but we have increasing resistance. And these are the kind of things you have to resort to. I found both of these articles, because they're companion articles, interesting and recent, both in Mexico and the United States. Think about this. Any past history of uncomplicated gonorrhea, that would be like bullhead clap, that's the drip, that's it, nothing complicated. Uncomplicated gonorrhea increases the risk ultimately of prostate cancer. So should you be involved with or should you hear about a patient in your hospital, your clinic, your office who's had gonorrhea, who might have been treated? They need to be warned. And under those circumstances, you know how the government's now deciding that we don't need all these tests because the benefit doesn't outweigh the cost to society like PSAs. I'm getting mine every time I go for my yearly exam. I'm sorry. I know people whose lives were saved because that was the first indication they had prostate cancer. And if my insurance won't pay for it, I'll pay for it out of pocket. Well, these patients who've had uncomplicated gonorrhea do need their PSA, and they do need an annual exam that involves feeling their prostate, which we don't do very well, but somebody, their primary healthcare provider does, and they should have that, and they need to be warned. Okay, this is lymphogranuloma venereum in its classic form. It caused enlargement and extreme tenderness. Patients couldn't walk of the inguinal lymph nodes and traditionally above and below the inguinal fold, inguinal crease. So you'd see enlargement, a little dip, and then enlargement, and they literally couldn't walk. We stuck needles into these, pulled out pus, and then they could walk, and then they got antibiotics, and they did fine. It's a very rare, used to be very rare, sexually transmitted disease but it's enjoyed a resurgence. Look, USA, Canada, Europe, and Australia. It is most common, not 100%, but most common in men who have sex with men. It is common to those who are HIV positive, but not exclusively so. And here's the way it presents now. It's a new strain, a brand new strain of the same organism, which is a chlamydial organism, but it presents as proctitis. What does proctitis present with? It can present with an anorectal discharge, rectal or abdominal pain, bloody stools, tenismus, a feeling of incomplete evacuation. You're not gonna see those patients. But what we can see is a perianal ulcer or just itching in the perianal area. And you know, when someone says I itch back there, I'm thinking inner trigo, contact dermatitis, in an appropriate age group, pinworms, maybe some low-grade psoriasis, seborrhea, a little eczema. You know, you know what to think about. But now you also have to include this disease because it's now becoming quite common. So someone who's men who have sex with men, especially but not exclusively HIV positive, who says, I itch back there or I have a sore back there, think very strongly about this heretofore almost 
non-existent disease in the U.S., lymphogranuloma venereum. And the way to make this diagnosis is to do a swab. You have to send it. Don't send it to your local lab. It's got to go to your county health department who will send it for appropriate PCR at the CDC. Treatment's easy, doxycycline or minocycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for three weeks. Erythromycin is the alternative for people who are really tetraallergic, but tetra by far is a better drug. And let me just show you an example of one of these. This is my patient who came in itching, but when I looked, there also was a small erosion there, perianal erosion. And this ended up being LGV. It doesn't present like it used to, which was rare anyhow. Now it's more common and presents in a very, very unusual way. And there's a long differential of things like this, perianal erosion or perianal ulcer. Itching is a key finding. And think about this disease. You will see it if you live in a big city. External genital warts, you all know what external genital warts look like. Like, you know, they can be little teeny tiny things and they can be massive tumor-like excrescences. So the vaccine, there are now three vaccines available in the United States. There's the bivalent vaccine that only addresses the oncogenic types of HPV, 16 and 18. Then there's the traditional quadrivalent vaccine that includes 6 and 11 for genital warts, 16 and 18 as oncogenic HPV viruses. And now we have the nanovalent, nine-valent vaccine that added another five types. They're less common, but five more types of oncogenic HPV, nanovalent. So people have asked, this is new, people have asked, well, what do we do if they've already been vaccinated? They've completed their series of three shots with the old vaccine, and finally, the American Committee on Immunization Practices issued some guidelines. If they've completed their entire series, they don't need the new vaccine. If they haven't completed their whole series, it can be completed with either, but preferably with the nine-valent vaccine. They say it's really not cost-effective because adding those five, if you do it all over again, you've already had your quadrivalent vaccine, and you add the nanovalent vaccine, you're not going to pick up a huge percentage of additional lesions, potential lesions. I should point out the nanovalent vaccine has about a 10%, a little over 10% increased risk of pain, redness, and swelling at the site of injection compared to the quadrivalent vaccine. Now, here's the thing. At the end of this year, the manufacturer Merck is going to discontinue the quadrivalent vaccine. You know it is Gardasil. It's gone. It won't be available anymore. So the only thing that will be available that's more than the bivalent vaccine, if you want to protect against genital warts as well as genital disease, genital cancer, is the nanovalent, the nine-valent vaccine. The little blue strips there are what you pick up by adding those five extra. It's worthwhile if you're just starting out, but they don't think it's worthwhile from a cost standpoint to do that if someone's already finished their vaccination. HPV vaccination in the U.S. is not doing terribly well. More women than men have been vaccinated. That's because it was approved for women first before it was approved and recommended for men. 
You know that the age of administration can be age 9, 10, 11, 12. That's optimal before sexual encounters start, but it can be up to age 26 for both men and women now. So how are we doing? Huh, we're in the 40 percentile nationwide, 40% of those who are eligible. This is a very safe vaccine, and it is incredibly effective. So I would urge you, even if you don't do it in your office, but you see adolescents, ask their parents. You see kids, ask their parents. You see young adults, ask them if they've had their HPV vaccine. Many, not all, but many insurance plans will pay for this. If they don't, it's approximately $600 for the series of three. But if you compare that to the cost and the risk of anogenital cancer, it's incomparable. You can prevent cancer. My God, why not do it? Okay. There's a lot of propaganda about the safety. This has aroused the anti-vaccine groups again to say that, oh, you're killing people, yada, yada, yada. There have been all kinds of safety studies. I've listed a bunch of them here, including things like even adverse pregnancy outcome. No, it's not supposed to be given when you're pregnant, but you know things happen. Autoimmune disorders, anaphylaxis, thromboembolism, anything. All these studies have been negative, including from here and from Scandinavia and from all sorts of places. This is a very safe vaccine. Now, that said, I do want to warn you about two things. The EMA, which is the equivalent to the FDA in Europe, has launched a review of the vaccine because they believe it's associated with two things, possibly. Postural orthostatic tachycardia, but you get up, and your heart starts beating really quickly, and then it takes a few minutes and it becomes normal. And that is a fairly immediate effect. It doesn't last very long, a month or two or so. But the other thing it may be associated with is complex regional plane syndrome. That's also called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. We most of us know it by that name. They do not not recommend the vaccine. They still think the benefits far outweigh the risks but they, wanna, they are investigating these two things. Everything else you might think about, Guillain-Barre and a whole other host of things associated with vaccines, maybe, definitely are not associated with this. It's a safe vaccine. Scabies, a happy little sexually transmitted disease. This is an interesting study. So in the US, what's recommended is oral ivermectin, 200 micrograms per kilogram, two doses given one to two weeks apart. Or permethrin, 5% applied from the collarbones on down everywhere, twice, one to two weeks apart. So this was a study that was done in Egypt where they looked at topical, not oral, topical ivermectin versus oral ivermectin. And they treated them, and then they saw how they were doing. If they still had itching, they treated them one more time with either topical or oral, so it's maximum of two treatments, and then they wanted to see how well did these two things do. And it turns out at week one follow-up, it wasn't statistically significant, but the topical was every bit as good, statistically not significant, but actually better. So there's non-inferiority here uh, compared to the 
the oral ivermectin, and at week, ultimately, the end of the study, week four, the two were virtually identical. So if somebody doesn't want to use oral ivermectin because they're afraid because it's a neurotoxin to the scabies mite, and they're afraid it's a neurotoxin to them, you could use topical based on this study. Now, what did they use? They used 1% ivermectin solution. We do not have 1% ivermectin solution in the US. But what do we have? 1% ivermectin cream approved for rosacea. I'm not telling you to do something off-label, but I've had some very young rosacea patients lately. It's one or two applications, very thin, and it worked like a charm. So I think you have three options now. You can use off-label. It is way off-label in the US, but, and it's based on a study done in Egypt, but topical ivermectin, off-label, oral ivermectin, which is interesting because it's recommended by the CDC, but it is not FDA-approved for scabies but it is recommended by CDC, or you can use topical permethrin. This is probably the best. Also, I just want to point out that there have been a number of cases of scabies linked to the anti-TNF biologic drugs when given for psoriasis, and they all looked like this. They're Norwegian or crustent scabies. So this is not a common event. But if one of your patients on one of the common biologic drugs for psoriasis calls up the office and says, oh my god, I have this horrible flare of my psoriasis. It's real thick and incredibly itchy. Oh, and my spouse, partner, friend, mom, dad, colleague, co-workers, co-students are also itching. Mm, think about scabies. It can be a side effect of TNF-alpha drugs. For Norwegian or crusted scabies, I guess we don't like to call it Norwegian anymore because we're picking on a country that produces oil and we would like them to be friends of ours. So crusted scabies, the treatment is like this. It's oral ivermectin, 200 micrograms per kilogram. Keep in mind it only comes as three milligram tabs now. It's 200 micrograms per kilogram day one and day two of week one. Then the next week, so Monday, Tuesday, the next week, days eight and nine, Monday and Tuesday of the following week, and then a fifth dose on Monday of the third week. Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Monday. That is considered to be therapy of choice now for crusted scabies, five doses of ivermectin. You can supplement that with topical permethrin, but it's not absolutely necessary too. Pubic lice is absolutely disappearing as a disease. And that reflects with the percentage of adults, particularly young adults, who are removing some or all of their pubic hair. This was popularized by Sex in the City. And you know, the woman who played the lead, I'm blocking on her name, somebody help me, Sarah Jessica Parker, actually got an award from the British Association of Dermatology because of popularizing that and all the young people in Great Britain get rid of their pubic hair. If there's no pubic hair, there's no place for pubic lice to live. And so pubic lice essentially has disappeared. And it's very uncommon even here 
And so the pubic lice are becoming an endangered species. And the US Zoo is going to do a pubic louse breeding program, and they're looking for volunteer. No, they're not. I'm, I'm, that's a joke. It's a joke. But it is true that the incidence of pubic lice, someone's scratching down below. You know, what you should think about is tinea, erythrasma, pubic lice. But pubic lice are way down on your differential diagnosis now because they're really, really uncommon. They're disappearing. Zika, you, you got this right on the pretest. So Zika is a sexually transmitted disease or can be sexually transmitted. It persists in semen longer than it persists in blood. Look at all those countries in Central South America and the Caribbean where Zika is. Of course, we're all concerned. We know there are a number of cases that have already been diagnosed in the US, somewhere north of 400, maybe as many as 600. The number changes every week. We know there are probably thousands of people with carrying the virus who have been to endemic areas and come back here because 80% are asymptomatic, so they don't know they're carrying the virus. The mosquitoes are about to multiply, and the, our local and national health authorities have stated they expect an epidemic of Zika in the United States around July, July stretching into August, because the competent vectors, the appropriate mosquitoes, live in the southern United States, particularly along the Gulf Coast, but they go as far north as New York. They've even been found in the Midwest. So if you have the right mosquito and they go bite someone who's got the disease, doesn't know they have the disease because 80% are asymptomatic, they get the virus, then they're hungry again, they go bite someone who's not infected, that's how the disease is going to spread. Now, only thing I'll say is that the CDC issued dire warnings about the spread of chikungunya virus a few years ago. We were all concerned that everyone was going to get sick from chikungunya. And in fact, the last three years, the numbers of cases have dropped steadily. And there were no native cases at all where there were three years ago. Now they're just apparently the mosquitoes didn't like it or something. I don't know. But it didn't happen. So maybe Zika won't happen either. But we do have to be prepared for it. And one way it's transmitted is sexually. This has now been shown in the United States, the first case here in Texas, and it's also been shown in Brazil. So it is a sexually, potentially sexually transmitted disease. We have now vaccine. We have no specific therapy. It's all supportive. And I think that's all I'm going to say about that. The uh, last thing I want to mention is prevention. This is the Guillain condom factory in China. It's the largest manufacturer of condoms in the world. And they're relatively reliable. They're better than Russian condoms, where 15% have holes in them. Not so reliable. But the, and, and every year they have this. It's the condom costume contest. And they make costumes of condoms. So all these colorful costumes you see are just condoms put together. So how good is a condom? First thing, the condom only protects what it covers. So here's a patient who consistently, regularly, always used condoms with every sexual encounter. He did not have a monogamous relationship, so he had many encounters with various partners. But the condom only comes up to here. And now he's got external genital warts up there. 
So it only protects what it covers. And it's not 100% effective. The degree of effectiveness varies from disease to disease. But it certainly is better to use one than not to use one, because that's surely a way to acquire something. So barrier protection is very, very reasonable to recommend to your patients who are in a demographic where they're going to have multiple contacts. Now, last thing I want to mention is this. There's an app for this. And you can go search on the App Store, depending on, you know, I have an iPhone, so there's that. I don't know. I'm sure there's an, uh, an App Store or something equivalent for Android phones, et cetera. It's called, and it's called the same in all the App Stores, STDTX. That's not STDs in Texas. That's STD treatment. And it's made by, this, this app is produced by the CDC. And they give you a nice alphabetical listing of all the STDs. So if you can't remember the protocol to treat something, you can put this on your cell phone and you can look it up in just a few seconds and you have your answer. So it's kind of cool. It's the 21st century approach to medicine, your STD app. So I hope you've enjoyed hearing about STDs. <clears throat> and I want to leave you with two conflicting views about sex. Here's view one. It helps relieve stress. It boosts your immunity. It burns off calories. That's always good. Boosts your self-esteem, improves intimacy between you and your partner, reduces pain. Have you ever noticed, I mean, maybe many of you are too young to have this, but my gosh, during sex, my knee doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> At least that's what I tell my wife. Um, it reduces your risk of prostate cancer and helps you sleep better. That's the good view of sex. And I'll leave you with the unfortunate bad view of sex. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Let's run through the post-test, the ARS questions again. How many cases worldwide of STD are there every day? 10, 100, 350, 900,000, Yay, improved 350,000 every, every day. And obviously, we did much better. At which college campus are you most likely to get syphilis? You know the answer. Can we skip this one and just go to the next one? Oh, we've already started the countdown. Well, you know the answer to this one, right? Since there's no syphilis in Idaho anyhow, because it's too cold. Yes, the Ohio State University. Okay, and you all knew this sort of beforehand. Anyhow, genital herpes due to HSV2 is likely to be more severe during periods of stress and anxiety, dieting, smoking, bulimia, or upper respiratory infection. No, 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 no,
And yes, everybody got that correct. And I do think this has a pragmatic implication for your herpes patients, especially those who are having frequent outbreaks. I think that's very important. So we did better, yes, good. Genital herpes responds to which innovative therapeutic intervention? Calcium gluconate, thermotherapy, cryotherapy, magnesium sulfate, or treatment for H. pylori? Yes, thermotherapy, herpotherm, not approved in the US, but available like everything on Amazon and eBay, and we did much better as opposed to a nice split and a whole bunch of things. Lymphogranuloma venereum, a disease you probably haven't thought much about, now presents commonly as pharyngitis, unilateral or bilateral inguinopathy, proctitis, or urethritis. Yes, proctitis. Unilateral inguinal adenopathy is the old way it presented. That was correct up until recently. Doesn't present that way. And there actually have been a couple of studies where they looked at the presentation in different countries. And it's all, every industrialized country, it's all proctitis. Unilateral inguinopathy is single percentage digits. So it's like, 8%, 4%, 6%. It's no longer the presentation of this disorder. And we did much, much, much better. Infectious syphilis is most prevalent in which US state? California, New York, Georgia, Nevada, or Louisiana? Yes, Nevada by far and away. So what happens in Vegas leaves with you <laughs> from Vegas. And we did much better, light blue versus dark blue. How many different HPV vaccines are currently available in the US? One, two, three, four, or five? Yes, now you got it. Remember, bivalent, quadrivalent, nanovalent, but in 2017, the right answer is gonna be two because that quadrivalent vaccine is going to disappear. Okay, incidence of pubic loss infestation is, in industrialized countries, increasing, decreasing, staying the same, or zero. Yes, decreasing. Sarah Jessica Parker got an award, remember that. I should get an award, that would be nice. Arbovirus, which is an STD, you all knew this originally, but we'll do the questioning. Yeah, Zika. Let's hope we don't have an outbreak. And we did better, but you already were clued on this. Gonorrhea resistant to ceftriaxone, 
the treatment of choice has been described and I think we had an overwhelming majority that got this correct. France, Japan, Norway, Puerto Rico, or all of these, and then some. And yes, it's all of these and then some. Started in France and Norway and Japan. Japan and Norway had one strain. France had a different one. Puerto Rico ended up with the Norwegian strain. And now it's everywhere. And you're all pretty good anyhow. But this one was a tough one. Gonorrhea resistant to ceftriaxone should be treated with amoxicillin, clavulinate, genomycin, azithro, streptondoxy, piperacillin, tazobactone, or solithromycin. Yeah, you all got it now. Solithromycin is coming, oral drug. It's coming. And we did way better now. And last but not least, how often do condoms prevent STDs? Y'all did pretty good on this anyhow. 100%, 92.3%. 20% of the time, varial percentage are never. Yes, variable percentage of the time, 92 is really too high. Some diseases, it's, it's at that or close to it. But overall, just protecting against all STDs, it's variable. Its protection rate against external genital warts is about 30%. Why? Because they can occur on skin-to-skin -skin contact in the suprapubic skin or upper inner thighs. And the condom doesn't protect that unless you wear a head-to-toe condom, in which case it's like really hard to have sex, have sex. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.